Well, good morning, Crosstown. It's good to be with you guys, those watching online as well as our campuses. We're so glad that you guys are with us. Uh, if you're new, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in part seven of our series in the Gospel of Luke. Now, church, I know that it doesn't seem like it right now when you look outside, but there was a time during the year when it was a good idea to go hiking. And I remember this past summer, we went to Stony Brook State Park and such a beautiful park with great hiking views. And so we decided to go for a walk, a two-hour walk, where I thought walking around the, the trail would eventually loop around to where we were parked. I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. And so uh, I thought I, I was doing the right thing. I, I thought instead of using a map or a compass, I would use my professional hiking instincts. <laughs> now, for those of you who know me, know that I'm not a hiker nor a camper. I don't even enjoy walking all that much for that matter. So I don't know what I was doing, but I decided to just, just take matters into my own hands. Uh, for whatever reason, I decided I was going to use my own compass. Well, after walking aimlessly for about 30 minutes or so, thinking we were headed in the right direction, I began to get this sinking feeling that we were incredibly lost, that we had no idea that my internal compass was broken. Uh, luckily for us, there were some campers nearby uh, that were able to help us know where we were, what had happened for us to get so lost, and what we needed to do in order to get back to our car. And after they explained that we were about an hour off track, I vowed in that moment never to go hiking again. <laughs> I mean, man, were we lost. Thankfully, though, these campers, these, these professional hikers were able to get us back on track. They drove us back to our car so that we could head back home, head back home. If you've ever had that sinking feeling like I did that you were incredibly lost, you know the importance of a compass. Uh, you know the importance of accurate directions. And so I thought I'd ask this question to start us off this morning to kind of frame our time together. What is the compass by which you direct your life? In other words, what's the most important thing in your life that determines all other things in your life? Uh, for the athletes here, what's the scoreboard which you can look at that lets you know whether or not you're successful at the right things in life? In short, in short, how do you know if you're headed in the right direction? How do you know? This is difficult, right? Because every single one of us have the tendency, like me in my hiking adventures, to get lost. And the problem is this. A lot of people live directionless. And, and it's easy to do so. It's very easy for us to get misguided and to go off course. And so what I hope to do today in Luke chapter 9 as we look at the scriptures is to get us back on track, to help us be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus, to know why we're here and what he's called us to be. And so as we look at chapter 9, we begin to see Jesus head back home. But before he gets back home, on his journey home, he has to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the place where he would die for our sins so that those who put his hope or her hope and trust in Jesus Christ will find forgiveness and eternal life. So the big idea that I want to preach on this morning is simply this. Because Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, we can confidently set our face toward him. Because Jesus was 
Single-minded in his determination to go towards Jerusalem, we can confidently set our mind toward him. Now, I want to zoom in on this phrase, set your face, because it shows up two times early on in our passage in Luke chapter 9 today. So let's jump into Luke chapter 9, verse 51 more. It says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that's our phrase, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he set messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They didn't welcome each other into their villages and their towns. And he sent, uh, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. And then verse 53 says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Um, That phrase, set your face, is a Hebrew term that simply means this. It's a single-minded determination to accomplish a task. Jesus had this. He set his face. And so there's two things that I want you to see early on in this passage. Jesus had a single-minded determination to go to the cross for you and me. But he not only had a single-minded determination, he also gives us the invitation to live a single-minded life in devotion to him. And I want you to see both of these today. Now, before we get too far into our text this morning, I want to point out some of the context of Luke chapter 9, uh, which, by the way, I hope you're reading ahead before each sermon. And in fact, you can read the chapter after the sermon as well. But in preparation, hopefully you read Luke chapter 9. And if you notice, there's There's so much jam-packed in Luke chapter 9. It was incredibly difficult for me to pick out one passage to preach on today because there's all these great things happening in Luke chapter 9. But I thought that this passage was pivotal, especially when we have to understand the context of what's going on here in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 starts off, or acts as sort of a a hinge to the gospel of Luke. Uh, See, up until that time, Luke has just been helping us answer the question, who is Jesus? And so he gives us the birth narrative. He gives us the, the, the baptism of Jesus. He gives us the temptation of the wilderness. He shows us the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, the healing and, and the miracles. And it all culminates to verses 18 and 20 where we read this in Luke chapter 9. Verse 18 says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them this question, Who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19 tells how people were thinking, you know, he was this and this. But, but then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's looking at his disciples and he says, what, what about you? What do you say? And Peter, being the first to answer a lot of times, answers this. You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Now, if you've read your, your New Testament, you know that Peter oftentimes gets it wrong. <laughs> but here, Peter nails it. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior who came to save us from our sins. And so from this point forward in the Gospel of Luke, his shift, his focus begins to shift in this Gospel. Meaning, now that we know that Jesus is the Savior, we need to know how he comes to save. In other words, what's his mission? Is his mission to march toward Jerusalem, to set up his kingdom and his castle, to be ruler and reigner of everything, to overthrow the Roman government? So what I want you to see is this sort of turning point in the gospel story as seen in this phrase, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Specifically in this context, that phrase, he set his face, means two things. The first thing that it means is this. Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
Uh, the Passover was a celebration that Jesus was very, very well familiar with because he had been celebrating it as a little boy. Ever since he was a little boy, they would go to Jerusalem, make the pilgrimage there to celebrate the Passover where God saved his people. When they were slaves under the Egyptians, remember the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus, the 10th plague was the angel of death would take the firstborn of the Egyptian, but in order to spare the Israelites, they would have to paint the lamb's blood on the doorpost. So when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, he would literally pass over that home and the Israelites would be safe. They would celebrate that. And Jesus was very familiar and he's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But not only was Jesus going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, there's something deeper that's going on here in this passage as well. And that is the second thing that I want you to see. Jesus was making his way to the cross to become the Passover lamb. He was making his way to the cross to become the Passover lamb. In fact, there's something very interesting that I want you to see in the very next verse, in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Isn't that a great verse, by the way? Isn't that fantastic? I love these guys. They have so much passion. These are like the, the turn or burn guys. These are like, we're going to go all Old Testament style on you. You don't want to follow us? That's okay. We're going we're gonna to drop firebombs from heaven down on you. <laughs> these guys, no doubt, were given a reference to the story of Elijah who called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But I want you to check out Jesus' response in the very next verse in verse 55. And 56, where he says, but he turned and rebuked them. Jesus rebuked his disciples, and they went on to another village. So here's what's happening. Jesus is simply saying to his disciples, put your fire bombs down. This is not the time for damnation or condemnation. This is the season of salvation. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus turn to his disciples and rebuke them? After all, the disciples were just sticking up for Jesus, saying, Jesus, they don't want to follow you. And so they're standing up for Jesus. Why does he rebuke his disciples this way? Well, he does it because of where his face was set. He would go to Jerusalem as the Passover lamb, not just to take, the, to, to take away the sin of the people for one day away, but he would go to Jerusalem as a Passover lamb so that all sin for all times would be taken away for those who believe in him. So you have to understand what's going on in this passage. For 30 years or so, Jesus made the annual pilgrim, pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover. And every year he has seen literally the shedding of innocent lamb's blood. He could smell it. He could see it. It was all around. There was so much blood so that there could be atonement for that year for the forgiveness of sin, so that there could be reconciliation to God and forgiveness. But in the back of Jesus' mind, he knows that this is just a foreshadowing of what is to come, that he would be the sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world once and for all. And so earlier on in Luke chapter 9, we read these words in verse 22 where it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. See, there was no question in Jesus' heart why he came. He knew why he came. He knew he was born to die so that we could be reborn and live. And I think one of the things that 
that Luke is calling us to do is to take inventory of what our great God has done. He's calling us to fully appreciate and in turn worship the one who set his face towards the cross so that you and I could live. He did this for us, church. He pursued us while we had nothing to do with him. He pursued us while we didn't want to pursue him. How great is our God, church? He's worthy of our worship. And what I want you to see is that before before Jesus ever asked us to lay down his life for us, he lays down his life for us. Before Jesus ever asks us to lay our life down for him, he lays his life down for you and I. That's the gospel, Crosstown. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's about what Jesus does, not what we have done. The gospel is all about what he has done. It's about his single-minded devotion to go to the cross, to Jerusalem, and provide the sacrifice that you and I needed in order to have forgiveness of sin. And as a result of what our great God has done for us, the invitation for you, as a result of that determination to go to the cross, the invitation for you and I is to live a single-minded, wholehearted devotion to Jesus in our lifetime. So with that foundation laid, and that's a huge foundation that we need to consider and ponder, Luke introduces us to three guys in this story. Three guys who were given the opportunity to follow Jesus. And what I want you to, I want you to see in this passage is through these examples is the direction that these guys are headed when Jesus invites them to follow him. Uh, the first guy we meet in verse 57 where we read this. Verse 57 says, And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so here we see the direction of guy number one. The direction of guy number one is this. It's comfort. It's comfort. Now, at first glance, this guy seems to be someone who is willing to go anywhere for Jesus. After all, it says that much in the text. I will follow you wherever you go. But I think when you look carefully at Jesus' response, he sees something that we cannot in this man's motive. And that, and that is this. This guy's true north on his compass was comfort. It was comfort. How do we know that? Well, Jesus' response indicates that this man had no idea where following Jesus would lead. Jesus essentially says, if comfort is the priority of your life, you're not going to become a very good disciple of me. If comfort is what you're after, you're not going to be able to follow me. In fact, you might as well follow the foxes, you might as well follow the birds, because at least they have homes. But as for me, the Son of Man, I have nowhere to lay my head. In other words, if comfort is what you're after, Christian, you might not want to follow Jesus. You know, it's sad in our culture in which we live that there are a lot of people who want to frame Christianity to sound more appealing in worldly terms than what it really is. Um, It's almost as if people have marked Christianity to be something it's really not in order to sound more appealing, uh, more palatable for the culture in which we live. But what I love about Jesus' response is he keeps it real with this guy. He says, if you want to follow me, that's, that's great, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. In fact, I love what um, Mark Batterson says regarding this topic of discipleship being, being challenged, being difficult. It's not this easy, breezy Christianity that we see in our culture. He says this, Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. 
The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. It's time to quit living as the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. I love those words. And, and then uh, David Platt in his book Radical adds this to uh, the conversation. He says, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort. It's not health. It's not wealth. Not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things, but in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ, and he is more than enough for us. If I could summarize those two quotes, I I would say this. I would say this. Next slide. Following Jesus is the best life you could ever have, but it's not the easiest. Isn't that true? And I've been a Christian now for 25 years. And in that time, there have been seasons where it wasn't really comfortable to do what Jesus was asking me to do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's not comfortable when following Jesus costs you friends. It's not comfortable when following Jesus puts a wedge between people uh, that perhaps have differing opinions and worldviews that you have. It's not comfortable. In fact, it can be very inconvenient when you're trying to honor God with your finances but yet you're surrounded by all these different temptations and luxuries and comfort of the world. Following Jesus is not the easiest life, but let me tell you, it's the best life. It's the best life. Like imagine, uh, for those of you who are a little bit older, maybe you remember this TV show, Let's Make a Deal. How many of you remember that show, Let's Make a Deal? Remember how the premise of the show works? It's like behind door number one, we've got all this. And, and the, so they list the prizes. Well, imagine in your life, imagine if someone came to you and say, well, behind door number one is all the riches that you'd ever want. It's all the possessions that you currently possess and what you would want in the future. And you could have all of it. Choose door number one. Or behind door number two is nothing but Jesus. Guess what? For the believer, Door number two wins every single time. Amen? Amen. My question for us today is simply this. Have we gotten too comfortable with our Christianity? Have we gotten too comfortable? You know, one of our core values is this. It's we're followers, not fans. So let me ask you a question. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you taking your relationship with Jesus carefully and and seriously when you read what he says and how he lives you're trying to pursue that you're trying to pursue holiness and righteousness in your life or are you just kind of a a fan have you gotten into the game are you willing to go whatever do whatever whenever wherever jesus calls you to do or are you just kind of on the sidelines looking in and watching other people live a serious life for christ are we taking our faith seriously or have we grown too comfortable with our christianity Now, let's look at the second guy in this passage in Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 59. He says, to another he said, follow me. So this is another guy. Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60 says, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, can I be honest with you just for a moment? Jesus doesn't come across as the nice guy in this passage, does he? (laughs) With his response. I mean, it seems like this guy is making a pretty reasonable request, is he not? Jesus, I want to follow you, but I I first got to go to a funeral. 
Uh, after all, I remember reading there, there's this phrase in the Bible that I have, honor your father and your mother. I'm just trying to honor them. So I'm just trying to take care of this one thing first. And what's Jesus' response? Jesus' response is simply this, let the dead bury their own dead. Wow. If I'm being honest, that seems a little bit insensitive, at least on the surface. But as I studied this passage, trying to figure out what's going on here, I, I learned something. Where in this passage does it ever say, specifically, that the father died? It doesn't. Now, it might be implied, and that very well might be what had happened, but I've also heard that if this guy's dad died, he wouldn't be out and about talking in public. Where would he be? Would he have a conversation with other people, or where would he be? He would be with his family, right? In fact, in that culture, not only would he be not in public, if he was around dead people, if he touched a dead person, a dead body, he would be called ceremonially unclean, and he would have to be put in isolation. He wouldn't be around other people. So I tend to think that what this man is asking for is not a one-day delay, but a delay that puts obedience to Christ somewhere in the distant future. See the difference? Sometime when it's more convenient to follow Jesus. It's, it's more like saying, someday I'll follow you, Jesus. Someday I'll follow you, Jesus. Maybe I'll follow you after my dad dies one day. Like when I get that inheritance check, then it might be a little bit more convenient for me to follow, leave everything behind because I'll be financially secure. Here's the direction of guy number two that we see. The direction of guy number two is this. It's the future. It's the future. I really hope that this message resonates and sits with our younger people here at Crosston, with high school people, especially college students in particular, who might be delaying their obedience till sometime in the future for a more convenient present. Are you doing that? Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, once I get this, once I get past this fun stage of life, then I'll take my faith seriously. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. Or, or, or Jesus, you might be the best future one day, and I promise I'll follow you that day. But in the meantime, I've got some things I want to do and some things I want to experience first. Jesus, you're my number one. But first, I got to go bury my dad. Jesus, you're my number one, I promise. But first, I've got to do some things. You see the irony of that statement? You're number one, but first. It's in contrast. He's saying, he's simply saying this. Jesus, someday I'll follow you. Someday I'll follow you. I'm not renouncing my faith or anything, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the back burner until it's a little bit more convenient. I'm going to put you on the back burner until I graduate high school. I'm going to put you on the back burner until I graduate college. I'm going to put you on the back burner until I find that special someone. I'm going to put you on the back burner until we settle down and have some kids. I just need a few years, Jesus. Just a few years to live it up, to have some fun, and to make some terrible choices along the way. And then I'll follow you. That's a horrible plan. Young people, that's a horrible plan. When Jesus makes this shocking statement, let the dead bury their own dead, he's speaking to our priorities. He's speaking to the urgency, really, behind our priorities. He's making a point that if you have anything in your life on the same level of following Jesus, you are greatly misguided. 
You're using the wrong compass. You got the wrong directions. You need to get back on track. If any pursuit in your life, the singular pursuit of following Jesus, competes with your devotion to Jesus, then those pursuits become dead ends. If, if, I, could put it, if I could put it like this, if following Jesus is not your number one priority, you're pursuing a dead end. It's a dead end. He says, let the, the dead bury their own dead. Which, by the way, can I just point out, dead people don't do anything. They don't move, let alone dig six-foot holes. And so, in other words, what Jesus is essentially saying is this. Let dead people do dead things. But as for you, you're not dead. You're born again, so therefore you pursue life in me. Pursue me. Make me your number one priority. Christian, especially the younger believers here this morning listening to this message, your number one priority, no matter what season of your life, is, it should be following Jesus with everything you got. Don't say, someday, 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 I'm going to get to you, Jesus. Someday, I'm going to take my faith seriously. No. Let someday be today. Let today be the day where you say everything else in my life, no matter what it is, no matter what's going on, it pales in comparison to following you, Jesus. Now, the last guy we see in verse 61 and 62, it says, yet another says, so this is the third guy, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we see the direction of guy number three. The, the, the direction of guy number two is the, the future. Direction of guy number three is this. It's the past. It's the past. Now at first glance, again, this guy's request seems fairly reasonable. After all, he just wants to go back home and say farewell to his, his buddies. And yet when you, what you see when you take a closer look at Jesus' response to this guy is he actually interprets his request. This man doesn't want to just go home and high-five his high school buddies. Jesus says this. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, on that day, if someone wanted to plow a field, here's what you would do. You'd get this huge apparatus, this huge piece of equipment, and you would attach it to some oxen. And as you were plowing the field, you had to make sure you were paying attention because if you weren't paying attention, the oxen would be all over the place. You wouldn't have straight lines. And worst case scenario, you'd get stuck in a creek somewhere. You'd be up, up a creek without a paddle, just a tractor, right? Just, just some oxen. It wasn't like today's world where... You, you got these fancy tractors, which I'm sure you got this technology now where you can set the coordinates of your farm and you can, you can make sure you have straight lines. The tractors essentially drive themselves. You couldn't do that. You had to pay attention. So Jesus is pointing it out in an obvious and truthful statement, and that is this. If you want straight lines, you can't look over your shoulder. If you want to plow straight lines, if you want a field that's straight and, and, and productive, You've got to look forward to what you're doing. Otherwise, you'll end up double-minded, you know, constantly looking over your shoulder. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I've got this. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm doing this. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm getting, I'm getting pulled back to the past. So this third man is essentially saying this. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I'm not willing to let go of my past. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I'm not willing to let go of that addiction. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I'm not willing to let go of those friends. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I kind of like hanging out where, where those people hang out. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I've got some things I want to keep doing. You're not willing to let go of your past. 
You know, when you look back at your past long enough, we all have a tendency to want to go back there. And that's the problem. It's damaging. And I'm not sure why we do this other than the fact that we have a tendency to glorify the past. We all do this. We love the highlights of our past, but we forget about the hurts. We, f- we love the highlights of our past, but we forget about the hangups. We love the highlights of the past, but some of you who are, had some partying days, you forget about the hangovers that came along with the highlights. We want to go back, but we forget about the pain. We want to go back, but we forget about how that didn't allow us to move forward. When we flirt with the past church, romanticizing sin, thinking it was great, we end up living double-minded lives, crooked in our ways, which leads us to getting stuck in our relationship with God, or worst case, it wrecks our lives. When you know Jesus, don't look back. When you know Jesus, there's no reason to look back. The past was dreadful. Those days were not good. They're not celebrating. They're not worth celebrating or holding on to. You know, this reminded me of the, the story of the Exodus that I referred to earlier. I was reading this story to um, uh, Owen and Josiah at bedtime a few weeks ago as we were, you know, getting through their, uh, their kids' Bible. And we were reading about how God had miraculously freed these Israelites after 400 years of slavery, generation after generation of slavery, where they were mistreated and abused, taken advantage of, didn't have freedom. And God opens the Red Sea, you know the story, and he causes the Red Sea to come crashing in on the Egyptians after they're safe. And so they're wandering in the wilderness, right? They're wandering in the wilderness, by the way, because of their disobedience, not to take the promised land, but they're wandering. And even though they're free, the Israelites have the audacity to say this. We want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt because they had the meat and they had the stew. It was just a better life. The way I remember it, I don't remember the hurts, the hangups, the hangovers. I just remember a better life. Are you kidding me? You read that story and you're like, from the outsider's perspective, why? Why would you ever want to go back? Why would you, why would you want to go back to slavery? And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ, how many of us, we do that all the time when we reminisce about the past, romanticizing sin, glorifying those days where we did not know Jesus. Jesus is saying, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Don't be drawn into those youthful temptations of the past. Don't be dragged away were enticed by those situations that you're supposed to leave behind, those people that are just out to harm you. Don't be dragged away by those relationships that are really just going to ruin your life. Don't be dragged away. Put your hand to the plow, stop looking over your shoulder, and move ahead because it's impossible. It's impossible to keep looking over your shoulder, being double-minded, and move forward in your relationship with Christ. The truth is, as much as we'd like to think that we're single-minded people always devoted in our heart and purpose to Jesus, we're not. We're not. Oftentimes we show ourselves to be double-minded. We want to walk with Jesus, but in varying degrees we have chosen comfort over Christ. We want to follow Jesus, but in varying degrees we've chosen to delay our obedience to a more convenient end. We want to move forward with Jesus, but in varying degrees, we reminisce about the past, looking over our shoulder and wanting to go back. 
But we, while we all struggle in varying degrees, can I just point out something amazing in this passage? Jesus is not double-minded. He's not double-minded. He's the one who put his hand to the plow and did not look back. He is the one that set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards the cross, and he did not look back. And the reason why he didn't look back is because he did it for you, and he did it for me. Church, do we not serve a great God? Amen? May we learn to be single-minded in our devotion. The question I want to leave us with this morning is simply this. Will we live single-minded, wholeheartedly devoted to our great God? Will we, having found the grace of God, find ourselves looking at the compass that should direct our life, which is the purpose of Christ? Have you found the true compass by which to direct your life? May we learn, church, to set our face to Jesus, the one who set his face to Jerusalem for us. May we be people who take the Bible seriously, holiness seriously, righteousness seriously, and wake up each and every day and say, Lord, how can I please you? I'm here to honor you. I want to live for you. What you say, I will do. Will we be that type of people? You know, I wonder if some of you here today, any of our our campuses and locations, or maybe people watching online, if you need to do just that for the first time. You recognize your sin and how it's wrecked your life. You recognize your need for a Savior. And you're sensing that God is drawing you to himself so that you would experience the grace of God. That while you were weak and while you were wayward and while you were worn out, God loved you and set his face towards you, paying the penalty on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins so that we could be made whole and right with God. Would you respond to that gospel? Some of you have never responded to that gospel before, like really responded with the gospel. Maybe you've given lip service to God, but really setting your hand to the plow and not looking back and saying, Jesus, where else do I have to turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. I know one day I'm going to stand before you, stand before a perfect and holy God, and I want to be declared right because of what you've done for me, and I want to be accepting the invitation to live single-mindedly, wholeheartedly devoted to you. Have you done that? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you received his love? Have you received his grace? And by his Holy Spirit, do you want to commit your life to following him from this point forward? If you've never done that before, the invitation's right now. And so at all of our campuses, with everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed, I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer that represents what God is doing in your heart. He's stirring you to draw closer to him, to recognize your sin, to ask for forgiveness, and ask him to come into your life from this point forward, to live single-mindedly devoted to him. If that's you, pray silently as I pray out loud right now. Pray, dear Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for me. Even though you knew what was ahead of you, you set your face to be crucified, to be mocked, to go through shame and ridicule and torture He did that for us so that we could be reconciled to you. I'm recognizing that now, today. And I proclaim the truth that I believe that you not only died for my sin, but rose again on the third day, proving your power over sin and death. And so, Jesus, I ask you to come into my life right now. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin and help me live for you single 
minded, laser focused in who you are and what you've called me to be. And it's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Amen. Church, if you just prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor on the back side of your connection card? There's a next step on the back that says, I want to become a Christian for the first time. And uh, we'd love to be able to follow up with you and pray with you and get you started in your relationship with God. Uh, so let us know that. Either let your campus pastor know after the service uh, or on your way out, you can hand that to an usher, <clears throat> usher or greeter or drop that in in the black box in the foyers at all of our campuses. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. We serve a great God, as we've seen in this passage clearly today. He has done marvelous things. The only appropriate response for us as a church right now is to continue and our act of worship and honoring him through song. And so I invite our worship teams to come forward as we close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your steadfast pursuit of us. Lord, we proclaim today this truth that while we were once directionless and it left us in ruin, you gave us the compass for how we are to live. You gave us the way, the truth, and the life. And he is your son, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. And we, we, we proclaim today, we hold on to this truth that because you set your face towards Jerusalem, we can confidently set our face each and every day towards you. Help us do that by your strength. We're not alone and we celebrate that now. We ask that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.